The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So at this time, I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to begin this morning at verse 12. In his gospel account, Luke wrote an orderly history of all that Jesus began to do. But in the book of Acts, we see the continuation of the work of Jesus as he expands his kingdom through the work of the apostles and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we focused on the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Remember, there were two angels that asked the disciples why they were standing there just staring up into the heavens. And they said, Christ is gone. He has departed from you, but he is going to return in like manner. I believe that Jesus departed from them specifically in that manner as a physical representation of himself going to the throne, but also as a declaration that I'm not leaving you in the same way that I've left you over the last several days. This time I am going away and I'm not coming back for a while. But we do know there is a time that Christ will return and he will return and he will step his foot down in that same place that he departed. And when that takes place, he will call all his people unto himself. But now... Let's turn our attention to the divinely inspired Word of God to see what God led the apostles to do directly following the ascension, beginning in verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. 
This is an incredibly full passage. So in order to narrow down our focus this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the following three key themes, and that will function as our outline. First, we're going to consider Christian unity. Secondly, we'll look at worldly sorrow. And finally, we'll close our attention on prayerful transition. Let's begin by observing the unity that was displayed in this passage. Well, before we do that, let me just ask the Lord to be with us in prayer. Father God, I pray that today as I proclaim the word of God, as I declare this to the, to the people who are seated in this place, that I would not stand in my own power, my own strength, that I would not be trying to pass along my own agenda. Rather, I ask God that exactly what your word is speaking to us about today, you would be speaking by your Holy Spirit to the hearts of each individual here, and that we would hear. And Lord, I pray that there would be a great revival in this place, in this church, in the churches of Long Island, in this community. Lord, I pray that there would be a great desire in our hearts, a zeal that Mike Negley was talking about earlier, to proclaim the gospel to everyone in our circle of influence. God, I pray that the people who hear and who are invited and who are given the word of God and who are proclaimed the gospel, I pray they would respond with faith and belief. But God, I pray specifically for today that there would be a revival in each heart in this room that there would be a revival of zeal, a revival of unity, a revival of godly sorrow and biblical repentance, and a desire for prayer and unity and fellowship in the body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus had commanded the disciples to return to Jerusalem and to await the arrival of the Holy Spirit. For the disciples, this is a very dangerous proposition. Remember that there was severe hostility that the Sanhedrin had towards Christ to the extent that they literally put him on a cross and had him executed. They don't like Jesus. They don't like those who follow Jesus. They don't like those who are proclaiming that Jesus is alive. These people are now placing themselves in a place of great danger by obeying Christ. But they do exactly as he says. The Jews had a rule of thumb that a person was only allowed to walk about two-thirds of a mile, in our way of measuring, on the Sabbath. So when it says that they had gone a Sabbath day journey out, that's the uh, place that's about two-thirds of a mile from the walls of Jerusalem. And then they return directly following back to Jerusalem, and they make themselves comfortable in the upper room. So this takes place directly following the ascension of Jesus. This is probably, we have every reason to believe so, the very same upper room where Jesus had enjoyed the Last Supper with the disciples. It's where Jesus told them just 44 days earlier that he was going to depart and that he was going to send them the Holy Spirit. It's the very same room where Jesus had gotten down on his knees, where he had taken off his outer cloak and tied it around his waist, and he had washed his feet, sticking his fingers in between the toes of those disciples, getting every speck of dirt off of them, where he made himself lowly as a servant before them. And we learn from Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that this upper room was owned by John Mark's mother. Who is John Mark? As you know, John Mark wrote the book of Mark, and he was also a member of the early uh, travels of Paul as he and Barnabas traveled across the known world as they were proclaiming the gospel. And as we work our way through this book, we're going to see that the upper room, this location, served as a kind of home base for the apostles in Jerusalem. Remember, just like we saw last week, the angels refer to them as men of Galilee, 
This is not their home. They do not have property here. So everything that they're doing is now going to be based primarily out of this location in the upper room, which serves as a central place of prayer and of decision-making for the apostles. Now, it must have been a large room as it contained roughly 120 people. And now they are all crowded in together, waiting for the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit. But do not overlook what it says in verse 14. It says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When have you ever seen 120 people agree on anything? You get five people together and ask them what they want for dinner, and nobody can make a decision. We do not think in one accord. When it says that they are of one accord, the literal Greek word here is a compound word. Two words slammed together, meaning one and mind. They were of one mind. Their thinking was identical regarding what they were called to do. And this unity of purpose is described by one commentator named Daryl Bach this way. He notes, the nascent or newborn church is showing some of its most fundamental characteristics. They are gathered They are seeking the Lord's will with one mind in prayer, and they are assembled to carry out God's mission. When we are gathered together, we are called to have this same kind of unity, this one accord that is taking place in this church. But don't take the unity that we see in this passage for granted. Let's remember who it is that is named on this list. First of all, the one that is always listed first in the list of the disciples, you have Peter. Peter, who constantly talks, always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter, who has done a great deal of damage to his own reputation at times by saying things that he shouldn't say. Remember when Jesus announced the disciples were all going to fall away? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he speaks to them, and he says, All of you will fall away tonight. We find the response that Peter had in Matthew twenty-six thirty-three. Peter says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's when Jesus turns to him and says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Imagine the way that this kind of attitude would have separated the disciples. This is not a unique thing, I don't think, for Peter. He had this kind of air of superiority. They might fall, but not me. They might sin, but not me. They might not be worthy, but I am. And you see this kind of unhealthy attitude in peter on a regular basis but what about what we see in mark chapter 10 remember right after jesus told the disciples that he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and to be beaten and flogged and to be crucified and do you remember what happens directly following that right after jesus tells them about his own death james and john approached him and they request to be seated at his right and his left hand when he comes in glory they want to be ranked number one and two in the kingdom And in verse 41, it says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They were furious. Do you see what's taking place here among the disciples? There is an unhealthy rivalry and an ungodly competitiveness that existed among these men. Of course, I believe they were friends. I do think that, on the, for the most part, they got along. They've all followed after Jesus. I think Jesus was probably regularly correcting them and trying to help them through these things. But please understand that they did not always have unity. Their backgrounds were even contrasting. Among the disciples, there's a Levi, who was also called Matthew. Do you remember his job? 
He was functionally a lackey of the Roman Empire, a traitor to the Jewish people. He was a tax collector. His job was to take exorbitant amounts of money from the people and not give it to the temple, not give it to Jewish charities, rather to take it and to give it to the Caesar who was attacking their people and taking over their lands. The people did not like tax collectors. In fact, he would have been unwelcome in any Jewish home. If he would have entered any home except for his own, then he would have had to have their home, they would have had to have their home ceremonially cleansed by a priest because by walking in, he would defile it. This man was a cultural outcast and an enemy of the Jewish people in the Jewish mind. So you have this man, and then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have this guy named, you have this guy named Simon the Zealot. Zealot's job was to kill Roman soldiers. They were a literal party of people whose entire purpose was to execute anyone who was supporting or promoting the Roman control of Judea. And these two guys slept in sleeping bags probably just a couple feet away from each other for three and a half years. I imagine that this was a challenging thing for the disciples. Their worldviews could not be more separate from their background. But do you see what is taking place here? That there is an uneasy tension that must have existed amongst the disciples. They were not always unified. But now in this room, even those two men are of one mind and one accord. And let's not forget that this group was also made up of both men and women. Now, that's probably not weird to any of us because literally look around. We are surrounded by men and women. But that is culturally absurd in this time. If you were to go to a synagogue in the day of Jesus Christ and you were to look around you, the lower level, the floor level would be all men, all adult men. And then the upper level, you would have the outer seats, the upper outer seats. That's where all the women and children would sit. They were not allowed to speak. They were not allowed to be involved in the service. They were not allowed to have any attention given to them whatsoever. If you were to look at the way the temple was designed, there were the inner courts that were just for men and the court of the women. That's where the women and kids were allowed to go. There was a separation here in terms of proximity to, to, to God. There was a division in their culture in the way that they were operated in communication. Men and women usually did not talk to each other. That's why when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, the disciples come back and they're like, what is going on here? Why are, why are you talking with her? There's a confusion in their minds about why he would cross over that cultural boundary. One of the things that we constantly see about Christ is that he is always uplifting and declaring the value of women to be equal to men, which was culturally absurd in that day. God has created men and women differently with sometimes different functions. However, their value is equal before God. And in the upper room, we now have men and women of one mind in this upper room. Now, I'm not trying to cause any division, but men and women are not often of the same mind. And God is bringing them together to think together in unity, to have one focus together of one mind. Not only are there women here, I, I want to point out the interesting fact here that Luke singles out Mary, the mother of Jesus. At the beginning of the book of Luke, the writer makes it clear that he has taken down a detailed eyewitness account of these events. Where did he learn all of these things? Luke had not walked around with Jesus. He was learning these things from eyewitnesses, as he says in the beginning of Luke chapter 1. And I think Mary is one of the eyewitnesses that he interviewed. Why do I think that? First of all, there are many things that he says in the book of Luke that he could have only learned from Mary. 
How would he, he have learned the words of the Magnificat that she sang to God? How would he have learned the, the fact that she pondered all of these things and stored them up in her heart? That's something that only she could share. So I believe that he has interviewed her. He knows her personally. And that is why he mentions her five times more than the other three gospel writers combined. Now, but in light of that, why I say this is very interesting is notice that in the midst of the early church, she is involved. She is a part of it. She is of one mind, but she is never on any occasion giving any orders. She is never on any occasion acting as the recipient of any of these prayers. These Christians are gathered together praying not to her, but to God. Mary was certainly a part of this early church, but they never viewed her in the way that she is presented by the Roman Catholic Church today. Any prayers that are offered to her are sinful and they are idolatry. We must worship God, not man and not Mary. But let's look at one more group that was here with the disciples. Luke takes special note of the fact that the brothers of Jesus were present. Now, if you had begun to read the Bible, starting at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and you read through all four Gospels, and now you're at Acts, and you just want to see what happens next, as you are reading through and you get to this verse, it should be shocking to you that he mentions the brothers of Jesus being in this room. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. In fact, if you remember back in our series of the book of Mark, there is a time when Jesus' family members came to see him. They went to visit. And here's what it says they did in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. These brothers thought he was crazy. All right, Jesus, it's time to come home. It's time to come home now. They're trying to get their older brother to leave the field, to leave the proclamation of the gospel. They do not like what he is saying. It reflects badly on them. They think that he has lost his mind, and now their reputation is going to be stained. So they try to get Jesus to stop. Thank God they were not successful. And then in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it tells us the names of his brothers. It says their names were James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Now, if you take careful note, these names are all over the New Testament because these are some of the most common names during that day. And these brothers never supported the ministry of Jesus before the crucifixion. Remember, as Jesus was on the cross, remember who was present? Mary was there, but none of the brothers Think about this carefully. They would have been required to be in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. They would have been required to be there, and certainly they knew what was taking place, as for days Jesus has been the center of everyone's attention, and now it is known that he is going to be crucified, and yet they do not go to the cross to see him hang there. So that Jesus says to John the disciple, see your mother, and to Mary, see your son. He hands over care of Mary to John, not to his other brothers, because they are not currently present. But now, after the resurrection, those men, those disbelieving brothers, now they believe. James and Jude, who are two of the men mentioned there, would eventually write books that fill out part of our New Testament. And there was no animosity between these brothers and the disciples. Can you imagine... Peter and James and John, they, they followed Jesus through the hard stuff. And now you've got these four brothers coming and believing. And, 
They, they rejected Christ. They often probably mocked him. They thought poorly of him. It would be really difficult to be a brother of Jesus because he was always perfect and being compared to him. I mean, now there's no animosity. They come and they are unified. They are of one mind with the, the apostles. This is supernatural. And I'm just amazed and blown away by the fact that there is great unity, not only now in the church, but as we read through the book of Acts, what we see taking place is this constant unity, this serving together in one mind. So what does this look like at RGF? Are we unified like these men and women? I can tell you that I am very thankful. We have a very peaceable church. To my knowledge, there is nobody who has some kind of a beef or argument with another. As far as I can tell, everybody kind of gets along, but there is a big difference between being nice and being unified. True Christian unity is grounded in sharing love for Christ and therefore sharing love for the bride of Christ, the church. If you really love Jesus, you must also love his church. And the gospel breaks down any kind of barrier and allows us to truly serve one another and to bear one another's burdens. So don't take it lightly at all the 11 times that this word is used in the Bible. Notice that each time prayer is closely associated and is involved in the mix of unity. The church that prays together is able to be unified because what is taking place is that God is reordering their heart. God is reordering their passions and priorities and desires so that the people who are there who are naturally going 120 different directions are now going in one direction, which is to follow Christ. So God is working in the hearts of the people. But before we leave this point, let me simply say by way of application, I want you to examine your heart and see how God is working in your life in this area. If you see that you are truly loving the Lord, then you should be of one mind with the people of this body. So I ask you to be unified around the gospel, to be unified around the pursuit of the kingdom. As it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That's us. We are his body. So let's live as a unified, loving, supportive, uh, godly nation of one another that bears each other's burdens together. This brings us now to our second point, worldly sorrow. In verses 15 through 20, Peter is going to rise and present the problem that they have. In those days, it says, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field. Now pause for a second. Right here at verse 18, your Bible might have parentheses. The reason for that is Peter is not saying this. This is a historical note being added by Luke, starting at verse 18, where he says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. There are two things that we really need to consider concerning Judas. First of all, 
there are many critics of the Bible who come to this passage and they will use this as a way to undermine it completely and say, see, there are contradictions here. There's a discrepancy in the ultimate fate of Judas when you compare this account to what we see taking place in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8. Let's read that passage carefully. It says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the silver pieces, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So how are we supposed to understand these two stories? How do we reconcile the details taking place here? Well, if you examine closely, you'll see that there actually is not anything that's truly contradictory within these words. First of all, the Sanhedrin refused to actually legally receive the money back. So they would not put it into the treasury. Now this, this, by the way, is just astounding. They call it blood money, and it came from them. They're saying this is ungodly money that cannot be used in the treasury, and they're the ones that paid it. These people are disgusting, evil people who are completely hypocritical. And now in this instance, they will not re- receive it, so it remains officially and legally in the command of the man who is now dead. So what we see taking place here is there is no legal transfer of this property, which is a very important, significant thing in Jewish tradition. So it remained legally in the name of Judas. So when they take that and they purchase property with it, the property must also legally be in the name of Judas. So they did not put the property in the control of the temple. They did not put it in their own name. Rather, this was Judas' land, even though they are the ones who picked it out and bought it. And when it says that he went, it was to be a burial place for strangers, that means it is to be a burial place for those who have no one to claim the dead body. It was not just for somebody who was traveling necessarily. It means it was for somebody who could not be claimed and nobody wanted to take them and have a funeral. Funerals are expensive. They are expensive now. They were expensive then. There were many things that you had to pay for. And so if there was somebody who was particularly unliked by everyone, sometimes they would die and their bodies would just continue to rot. And so the people would say, we have to have somewhere to put them. So where are we going to place them? Now we have a spot. We're going to take them out and throw their bodies into this field where they will decay. And nobody will ever go there because, as you know, decaying flesh produces lots of bacteria and disease. So they knew, even in this time, so where there's death, you avoid it. It would make you ceremonially unclean. It would probably make you sick. So this is where they're now going to place it. But notice, Judas seems to fit that bill very nicely. I don't think anybody was quick to claim his body. And finally, what about the actual method of death? Matthew says that Judas hanged himself, but Luke says, quote, that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, simply put, Judas did hang himself, but Luke, being a doctor, is describing the effects of that kind of event. So scholars describe it in one of two possible ways. 
perhaps upon hanging himself, either the rope broke or he slipped through the rope and fell to his demise, which is why such horrors took place to his physical bodies, his physical body, or... I lean more in this direction, as some scholars argue. He did hang himself, and he remained hanging there in the Middle Eastern sun until his body bloated and burst, and bodies often do that kind of thing in this climate, and then these things took place, which would be very sensible. Now, I know this is absolutely disturbing and disgusting. Regardless, this is stating that this is... This is a graphic reality, but this is just the first of many incredible deaths that we see take place in the book of Acts. When Stephen is stoned to death, Luke describes it to us, the reader, this way. He says, and he fell asleep. That's a brutal, harsh death, yet he describes it like falling asleep. But when there's a series of violent deaths that are presented in the most horrific and stomach-turning ways, it always occurs to the people who are trying to oppose the gospel, and the spread of the kingdom. Over and over and over in this book, you're going to see people die in these terrifying ways. And every time, it's somebody who has set their foot between Christ and the direction the church is to grow. God removes them himself. But we need to ask the question, why did Judas do this? Why did Judas Judas hang himself? Why is it that his body encountered this horrific suicidal event? First off, we read a moment ago that he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He went into the people declaring, I know I'm a guilty sinner. This is an incredible reality because these are the same people that you were supposed to go tell. These are the same people that you were supposed to go confess your sin to. But he has not been doing that for for years as he's been following Christ. And Jesus is the one who has replaced that system completely. And we don't go to a priest now. We go directly to Christ. So let's talk about guilt for a moment. There are moments that we all look back at what we've done and we get this deep abiding sense of guilt. It's that pit in your stomach when you get pulled over for speeding and you know that you were speeding. It's that sad memory that you have when you think of something unkind that you've said to a loved person. It's that difficulty sleeping when your worst deeds are running through your head and you're saying, I cannot believe I did that. It's when you hear a sermon or you read your Bible and you are confronted with the word of God and those words hit you like somebody has pulled an arrow, a flaming arrow back and they've shot it directly into your chest and now it's just burning and you can't seem to get it out. It is just eating at you and eating at you and eating at you for days. This is guilt. But there's more than one kind of guilt. The Bible teaches there are two different kinds of sorrow that come from this guilt. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth that pointed out their errors and he demanded that they repent. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he is reminding them that he sent that letter and declaring his thankfulness that he sent it because they repented. And in the specific verse, it says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Judas is a prime example of a man who felt the weight of his sin, who felt the guilt of his sin. He looked into the very face of the Savior and still kissed him on the cheek and betrayed him. And even that sin would have been forgiven if Judas would only repent and trust in Christ for forgiveness. But Jesus, or just as the Holy Spirit had foretold through the pen of David, Judas was not going to repent. He was committed to his sin. He would feel the weight of the guilt. He would feel the shame. He would weep. He would even go return the money. 
And then he would even harm himself because he felt so bad and so disgusting. But there was no actual genuine repentance. Please hear me carefully today. There are many people who believe that they are in the kingdom of God because at one point in their lives they felt guilt over sin. And at that point they cried or they said a prayer or they tried what they could do to get out from under that guilt. Uh, Some people weep. Some people make restitution like Judas did. He went and he took the money back. That's the reward he thought he was going to get, right? Well, sometimes that's what we do. We feel like we've sinned. We've achieved something by some unfaithful or ungodly or dishonest means. And so we, we get rid of that thing. We try to make restitution on our own. But that doesn't fix your problem with God. And it didn't fix Judas' problem either. There is no such thing as penance that you can do to restore you. A truly saved person will feel guilt, but then they will take that guilt to Jesus and they will be forgiven. Their life is going to be marked by actual ongoing repentance. They will grow in hatred towards sin and they will run from it. Judas and Peter both betrayed Jesus in their own way, but Peter's sorrow where he went out and wept bitterly, resulted in actual repentance. Judas's did not. There are most likely some people here who are presently seated in this room who are at church because they feel guilty of sin and they believe in some way that being in the building while a guy like me is talking about the Bible and singing these songs and throwing a few bucks into the offering plate will make them right with God. But there is only one cure for sin and it's none of those things. It is only the blood of Christ. So if you feel the guilt of your sin, don't just cry about it. Don't just try to make it right. Now, there are lots of things that we are called to do. But the first and only important significant thing to start with is this. Confess your sin to Jesus Christ. Recognize that you are guilty before him and call out to him for forgiveness. You don't deserve it. You cannot deserve it. You will never deserve it. You cannot buy it. You cannot build a way to get to God. There is only one thing you can do is confess and plead for his grace. And the promise is that all who call in his name will be forgiven of their sin and will be saved. He alone can make you clean. This now brings us to our third and final point, prayerful transition. Peter has just presented the problem. Look, we had 12, now we're down to 11. We need to get a new guy. Just like it says in the book of Psalms that there is going to be another to take his office. Now, a side note here. Uh, over the last uh, several months, I've, I've made it a practice to, whenever I'm not preaching on a Sunday... To that week, I will watch several sermons or listen to several sermons from other surrounding churches that I don't know much about, just because I want to know what's out here. And it is not my intention or my goal to bash them or to accuse them or to point the finger at them, but I will say I've been discouraged and deeply saddened about how few of them use the Bible to actually make any point from their sermons. They might say good things and sometimes even say right things and accurate things, but they are not using the scripture to ground what they are declaring to be true. Notice that what Peter does is he stands up and he says, this is what the Bible says, now let's do it. And this should be a pattern for us where we are listening for not just what we think is right, but what the scripture clearly teaches to be accurate for us to live out. 
So notice, he declares the problem that just as Israel began with 12 tribes, so it was always the practice of Jesus to lead a a troop of 12 disciples. So now, one of them had to be replaced. So we read in verses 21 and 22 the criteria that they put forth for apostleship. Now, I want you to look at this carefully. If you have your Bibles in front of them, of you, open them, look at these verses. I want you to see these words. These are incredibly significant. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 shows you the requirements, and I want you to see them with your own eyes. It says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Later on, we'll see Jesus reveal himself to Paul, and Paul will call himself, therefore, an apostle born out of season. But we see here the requirement of personally knowing the earthly ministry of Christ and experiencing the resurrected Jesus cannot be met by anyone who is alive today. In short, there are no more apostles. That office has ceased. Consider the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then he describes the household of God, saying that it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus was the cornerstone. He was the perfect stone that started out the building project. And the apostles and prophets were like the cement and the metal beams that were formed around that cornerstone that create the foundation. And every successive generation of Christians, including you if you are saved, throughout all of time must stand together on the teachings of Jesus and on the teachings of the apostles and prophets. But that foundation has been completed, and there is no more groundwork to be done. Therefore, if anyone ever introduces themselves to you as an apostle, do not listen to them, be kind to them, be gracious to them, but run. (laughs) Run away from them. Do not follow after them, because at best, they are going to lead you into confusion At worst, they are going to lead you into false teaching that leads to destruction. This includes if somebody comes onto your television screen that says they are an apostle, or someone comes across the radio dial that says they are an apostle. Run! They can only lead you in a direction that is false. At best, confusion. At worst, false teaching that is in complete opposition to Christ. In 1926... There were two non-practicing Ashkenazi Jews that began writing letters back and forth to one another about the nature of quantum mechanics and cosmological constants. If you read these letters, they are incredibly fascinating, but I don't know 99% of what they're talking about. But from one of those letters, we get Albert Einstein's famous statement that he does not believe God plays dice. But in our text today, we see that the disciples did. We read, starting in verse 23, and they put forward two... Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. 
Now, it appears as though, from an earthly perspective, both of these candidates completely fit the requirements to be an apostle. They had done everything that the other apostles said was necessary. But they can only choose one to round out the twelve. So at this point, they are at an impasse. They don't know what to do. But they are determined that their final decision would be made by casting lots. Casting lots is interesting. It took a lot of different forms throughout history. Sometimes it was literally like dice, usually made out of bone. Sometimes it was done by a primitive form of, like, I don't know if you've ever done this when you were growing up and you were playing dodgeball. The first person was the one who drew the short stick or the long stick. It's kind of what uh, it was like in those days. Sometimes it was actually a bunch of sticks that they would throw out and it would create some kind of a pattern. And if it had the first letter of your name in that pattern, then it was you. We don't know exactly what kind of lots they were casting this day. And there's a lot of debate surrounding that. Ultimately, none of it matters. And that's why Luke doesn't write it down for us. But the point is the same. It removed any kind of human instrumentality and placed the answer in the hand of the sticks or in the hand of the dice. It removes it from their decision-making. Let's talk for a moment about what you should do if today I walk out of this building and get hit by a bus and die. What should you do to find a new pastor to fill this pulpit? There is some information in this text that is helpful and instructional for us. First, find qualified candidates. People who line up with what is meant by the scripture as a pastor. Somebody who fits the qualifications and the criteria found in Titus chapter uh, 2 and 1 Timothy. Find somebody who has zeal for holiness and passion for evangelism. Find somebody who is capable of taking the text to the people and proclaiming it faithfully. But in the midst of all of that, when it comes down to make the decision... Let's say you have two good candidates. How do you select who will be the next pastor of this church if I am to die instantaneously? Now, let me just say, if God were to, uh, if tomorrow I were to find out that I have cancer and I will die in a year, I will be involved in that process and to help find. I would lovingly shepherd through that process. But if the Lord took me in a moment, how would you determine that? By the, the direction of the elders and by the leadership that they have for you to pray. Notice they don't just play dice here. They are dedicating themselves to prayer together. They are coming together and they are declaring their desperate need for God. Now, they did make the final outcome with this kind of casting lots, but they didn't just make the decision all willy-nilly. They made sure they made their request known to God and they came together as 120 people continually coming before the Lord and praying. So let's ask a couple of questions here. First, were the apostles doing something wrong by making their decision with this method? And secondly, should this inform our decision-making? First, did they do something wrong? There's been a lot of theological debate about this, and as I read through the commentaries on this, it, it, it's really interesting, but most people just come up saying, I don't think so, but I don't know. Ultimately, I don't believe that what they did was sinful, and here's why. First, the disciples never determined that this was incorrect or sinful. When the Holy Spirit arrives and they began to convict the world of sin, we never hear that they were convicted in their hearts of the way that they chose Matthias. They never have a do-over. They determine that this is accurate, and they move forward as Matthias being the twelfth apostle. Secondly, Luke is excellent at informing us when somebody is functioning in a way that is contrary to the commands of Christ or 
if they're doing something in contradiction to the calling of the church. He makes it very evident there's never any ambiguity in the book of Acts. So I don't think this is wrong, because if it was, I think Luke would have written it in such a way that as we read it, we'd say, oh, Luke surely thought this was inaccurate or ungodly. And thirdly, this action was not taken as a replacement for prayer. Rather, it was viewed as a way to answer their prayer. But now let's get down to the second question. Is this how we should see our prayers being answered? Should we make our decisions this way? And the answer, of course, as we mentioned before, is a resounding no. But why not? These are the apostles. Did I not just say that they are the foundation of the church and that we are supposed to do what we saw them doing? Yes, absolutely. But let me answer the question this way. I think in answering this question by digging down on what is taking place here, it is actually the point of the Holy Spirit, why he inspired Luke to record this detail for us, so that we would know the difference between what, what it was like in the church before the coming of the Holy Spirit and after. How does God inform people about what they should do throughout the Bible? Let's think back all the way to the Old Testament. On rare, very rare occasions, God would send an angel to speak to people and tell them what to do. For the most part, God spoke through judges and through prophets, and he was giving them the word of God. There's a, a challenging situation. What should I do? Let's ask the prophet. But then there's this 400 years of silence, 400 years where the heavens are brass and no words are coming down until finally there is a new prophet that arises, the last prophet to make straight the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. And some of the disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. They followed him and they listened to what they should do from him. And then when Jesus came along, they saw him and they left John the Baptist and they followed Christ. And how did they know what they should do? How did the disciples make their decisions? Because Jesus just told them what to do. And Jesus was direct with them about what to do. And he gave them every kind of detail that they would need to do what they were called to do. But now he has ascended into heaven and he has given them some instruction, but he did not personally inform the disciples who was to replace Judas. Instead, he told them to return to Jerusalem and he left them for that final time. And for 10 days, the disciples were waiting in a situation that you and I will never understand or experience as a Christian. Christ had ascended and left them, but the Spirit of God had not yet come. The apostles are now forced to make different decisions, and we see them making decisions all throughout the book of Acts, but they never again employ this method after the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit came, it changed everything. Let me give you one example of a very similar decision that had to be made. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, the church in Antioch is faced with another decision about which men to send out as missionaries. It is their heart, it is their desire, it is their goal to go plant churches around the world so that many people will hear the gospel and be saved. But they did not know who to send, and they do not rely on human wisdom, and they do not roll any dice. Instead, listen to how the answer was given. It says in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. From this point forward, our decisions are not made in this manner. From now on, decisions are made by trusting in Christ and praying together until the Lord gives us clarity for the answer. When I was serving as a youth minister in Kentucky several years ago, it was actually a church in Indiana, there was an elderly woman who was struggling to make a decision about whether or not to move in with her daughter. She was uh, at the point where she needed to kind of make a decision about whether or not she was going to remain on her own. And she told me that she had made that determination this way. She said, I decided in my own mind, if God allowed me to see a butterfly on my way into the church today, that I would move in with my daughter. But if he didn't, then I wouldn't move in with my daughter. And that's how God is going to answer this prayer. That is not the way that God answers prayer. That is not the way that we should go about asking God questions. Do not put out a fleece for God. Do not trust in signs or symbols. Although, although God does control the outcome of every die roll, like we see in Proverbs chapter 16, 33, that every roll of the dice, is, uh, the outcome is determined by the Lord. God does control the dice, but that is not the method that he has chosen to speak to you. Everything that you need to know about life and godliness has been graciously granted to you in the scriptures. And when there are two seemingly excellent options on the table before you, but you can only choose one, there are two seemingly perfect choices. How do you determine? You determine through prayer. Uh, As a, a person who did youth ministry for seven years, one of the biggest questions that I often was asked was, what is God's will for me? to? Which college should I choose? I was accepted at these schools. Where should I go? And from an earthly standpoint, they're all about the same. They charge the same amount in tuition. They have the same level of education. Their degrees are probably not super valuable unless you go through and get your master's, right? But as I'm talking through this, these details, I'll ask the students, so let me ask you, have you prayed about this? And the answer is usually no. And you might say, well, that's because they're high school students. And high school students are just high school students. And of course, they don't know to pray yet. Well, let me ask you about your situations. When you are given these kinds of situations and they are put before you, you have to make a decision. What do you do? Most likely, you begin by drawing a line down a paper and you say pros and cons and you start to make a list. Or you begin to figure out what is the most logical option or the most personally appealing option. Oftentimes, God will not give you the most appealing option. And the way to know which one is the right one is to pray. And so I call on us as a church to pray together, to be unified in prayer, but also to you as individuals to be dedicated to faithful, personal, private prayer. And as we will see, the apostles were not relying on their own strength in this situation. They trusted in Christ and they were living in light of the Savior who answers prayers and he is the one who leads them and guides them. And in just Next Sunday, we're going to see about exactly what that looked like when the Holy Spirit came to begin to lead them in a new way. So may we also trust in Christ to such a degree that our very first instinct in every situation is to take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would be like the disciples, the apostles in this chapter, in the sense that we would be completely dedicated to prayer, that we would be united and that you would be working in this church to make us a unified body, serving Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love one another, and that you would help us to live for one another as we live for Christ. And God, I pray also that you would help any in this room who is currently living in sin, 
who have felt guilt but have never truly repented, that you will cause them to genuinely repent and run to the cross for forgiveness. And if there is anyone who is saved that is trapped in sin, I pray that they would not continue to hide it or cover it up or think little of it, but they would see how putrid it is before you and they would take it to the cross and be forgiven. And God, I pray that today as we close out this service and as we receive an offering, that you would give us the ability to give faithfully and graciously, not with any compulsion, but for the building up of your kingdom. God, I pray that as the ushers come forward, that you would work in this giving and this offering to build up your kingdom here on Long Island. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.